You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. teaching text is 2 Chronicles 20, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 4, verses 11 through 12, 15 through 16, and 20 through 23. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, with some of the Meunites, came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom and the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already in Hazazon, Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. He said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. Early in the morning, they left for the desert to Koa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem, have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in the prophets and you will be successful. After consulting the people of Jehoshaphat, appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out ahead of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise the Lord and set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were invading Judah, they were defeated. And the Ammonites and the Moabites rose up against the men of Mount, from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. You may be seated. Thanks so much, Jared. Um, I agreed with uh, Jared that I would come and speak as long as he would read the passage. You know, like when you get Old Testament passage, it's really good to uh, have somebody that knows a lot more than you read the passage. So that's what we did. But I, I want to pray with you. And, and I just want at this moment, right, sometimes this can be just like a transitional kind of thing that we do. But our, our big topic this morning is going to be corporate prayer and corporate worship. And so as you are assembled together here as the people of God, uh, there's a, a specific invitation to come and to receive his power and his mercy. So I'm going to pray for you, but I want you to pray um, that, that God would reveal to you the thing that you need most. And so we're just going to quiet our hearts. Um, some of you, you know what that thing is immediately. It's popped into your mind. Um, others of you have pushed it down. Um, after years of neglect, believing that, um, you know, maybe God doesn't care about that area. Well, this morning is about God meeting you and setting you free in that area. So would you just bow your head with me and let's just pray for a moment. Welcome his spirit to minister to us.
Father, you know every heart, every story, personally and intimately. You care about every individual that you have formed and fashioned through your own hands. You know every person that you have imprinted your image upon that is gathered here together as the people of God. You give us passages like Second Chronicles chapter 20 so that we would trust you more and believe you more. So I pray for the things that are immediately obvious that we need, the trials and the battles that we're going through, that you would meet us personally. But even the ones that we've buried deep down, that you would unearth and you would begin to do real ministry for the glory and the fame of Jesus. So he spreads in this city and to the nations. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to begin this morning. We're going to look at 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and it has just been a joy to already be with you this morning. I'm going to let you in on a little secret that pastors do. Like when there's two services, it's always a competition between the first service and the second service. Like they always say, like, hey, how, how was the first service? How did it go? So they were rocking this first service. So I'm there, no pressure, um, but they were like amening. They were shouting me down. So um, yeah, so that helps me to preach better. So if you want to go ahead and engage in that, um, and if it's if it seems like it's a joke today. It is, okay? I, I'm working on my humor, but um, yeah, this, this is a place where we don't really take ourselves super seriously, but we take God seriously. And, you know, so this should be an environment where, you know, this is the happiest, most joyful place on earth. And I want to begin this morning as we look at Second Chronicles chapter 20 with a question, who taught you to worship? Now, worship, I mean, we use this word, worship is all of life, most certainly. But when you enter into this context... Who's been the shaping influences on your life? For most of us, it could be a mentor or somebody that you looked up to. It could be your denominational background, depending on what that your experience was with the church. It could have been, you could have been Baptist. You could have been Church of Christ. You could have been Pentecostal and running around things. You know, whichever one you, there are more Pentecostals in the first service. They laughed at that joke. All right. So, <laughs> but who shaped your worship, right? And we talk about, you know, intentional spiritual formation here and unintentional spiritual formation. This is an area that maybe you haven't evaluated. So who should set the tone or the style or the content of corporate worship? And more and more, we want to allow the truth and the story of God and the stories of Scripture to shape how we actually come together. Um, it is my conviction, and, and it's the burden that I carry, that the gathered people of God, because you are individually, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, a temple of the Holy Spirit, and because it says in Ephesians 2 that when God's people come together corporately, they are the temple, that this is supposed to be the most spiritually dynamic, spiritually transformative place on the planet, right? This, there should be life that's received the moment that you begin to interact with God's people, whether that's the greeters that get you when you come in the door, or you're like, I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you, and you're lifting up your hands in worship. You're, there, there really is a freedom that comes as we worship him. And uh, Mark Sayers, in his book, The Road Trip That Changed Everything, kind of helped us think about how did we actually get to the place that we are with worship? You know, um, have you ever thought about that? Like, how did we get to chairs being in here? And, you know, we got a keyboard and we got some electric drums, which are awesome, by the way. And how did we get from the, the pages of the Old Testament and the New Testament to people in a room singing songs? Because that's pretty unique on this planet, 
Mark Sayers in his book, The Road Trip That Changed Everything, says that basically worship underwent a massive shift after World War II. Like the soldiers were gone and they were in Europe and they were used to being um, constantly entertained with movies and entertainment. And so when people came home from World War II, um, people didn't come back to the church and we've all experienced seasons like that. So the church had this great idea and I don't think it was bad instinctively. They said, we're going we're gonna to put forth programming and we're going to draw people back into the church. And so they, they put signs out front that looked a lot like movie marquees and that's why you see a lot of those. Now, I don't know if they put the programming out there, but they put those cheesy signs out there that say, you know, like... Are you reading more of God's book or are you on Facebook or, you know, some of those kinds of things like that's what the church signs are. They've devolved into that. But he said when the church made this shift towards programming, basically it made people turn into consumers of a spectacle. So people began to come and arrive instead of people that were devoted to the living God and to worship and to celebration of him. They began, became consumers of a spectacle. And the, the first thing that they asked when they entered a ch- church context was, what's in it for me? Right. I mean, have you ever been there? Right. Well, so what we're going to see in Second Chronicles chapter 20 is this idea that, that God loves to inhabit the praises of his people and he works powerfully, especially in times of trouble. The big idea that we're going to look at this morning is worship is warfare. Can you say it with me? Worship is warfare. All right. So worship is warfare and it's meant for us to stand in the midst of trouble. In his book, The Reset, Jeremy Riddle says the following. He says, wherever God is worshipped, in spirit and in truth, his kingdom is established. His freedom reigns. The works of the devil are destroyed. Pure praise has always been a weapon of mass destruction to the kingdom of darkness. So what we're going to do this morning is learn to wield this weapon of mass destruction against the kingdom of darkness and against the enemy of your souls. And we're going to learn how to wage warfare together. And so this is about our corporate experience. This isn't about you and Jesus or you and the Holy Spirit, but this is about the greatest gift that you've been given by God. Not only is his very presence, but it's he's joined you to a family. And the, the greatest gift that you have in times of trouble is that you don't actually have to go at it alone. I have a friend, Donnie, who is in North Carolina. He has a lot of army rangers in his church. And he often says, lone rangers are dead rangers. The Christian life was never meant to be lived in isolation or to show up at a meeting once a week, but it's meant to be this corporate expression of the people of God where we bear one another's burdens and we draw down the power and the presence of God together. So when I'm talking about worship, I'm talking about more than singing. I hope you know that. We talk about worship being all uh, more than um, just our singing and our songs together, but I need you to hear me on this. Worship is never less than your singing. It would be a massive overstatement to say, I'm passionate about worship in all of my life, but I'm quiet as a church mouse when I come into this room, right? So if we're going to be passionate out there while we're on mission for God, there's this refueling that happens as we come together in his presence. So my big goal is that we draw down the power and the presence of God together. We're going to look at that as we look at the story of Jehoshaphat from 
2 Chronicles chapter 20, which I figure you guys already have memorized, right? All right, the first big point we're going to look at this morning is worship is warfare because life is a battle. Worship is warfare because life is a battle. In verses 1 through 4, we see King Jehoshaphat, who actually was one of the better kings that was in the Old Testament because there's this little addendum on the the back of his name that he followed in the footsteps of David, his father, which means that he was a worshiper, that worship was of central importance to him. All the wicked kings basically went and ran after other gods and the good kings tried to establish and see God enthroned among his people. So Jehoshaphat received a report There is a vast army approaching. The ESV calls it a great horde. And they are in in Gedi, which in army terms is basically they are knocking at the door. They're only 50 miles away. And basically what Jehoshaphat does is he calls the people of God to pray and to fast and to worship. So my question to you is, what do you do in times of trouble? What do you do when you hear the footsteps of this vast army and a great horde that are knocking at your door? God invites his people in times of trouble because life is a battle to draw down strength from him. Now, the truth is life comes at you fast and you can never prepare for the battle, right? I mean, it's just like those Life is Mayhem commercials with Dennis the Beaver King from 30 Rock. You know what I'm talking about? You know, he's riding the exercise bicycle and it just runs through or they have a car wreck. Like life comes at you fast. You cannot schedule when you go into the battle, right? I mean, it's not as if you can say next Thursday between 3 and 6 p.m. right after soccer practice and before dinner, I think I'm up for a battle, right? You, You don't have that luxury. And the truth is, I know in this room, everyone is fighting some kind of battle, and most of them are battles that you did not anticipate, right? There are people in here, and, and this, is, this is my confidence. There are people in here that are walking through severe fear, anxiety, depression, and worry, just like we were singing. And the power of God, when we enthrone God as he is in faith, and we begin to draw down strength, the power of that becomes broken in our lives. I believe he actually doesn't just want to manage the symptoms. Now, we believe in counseling. We believe in spiritual formation. We believe in all those things. But we also believe that God breaks in in a moment and he changes everything for his people. That's what Sunday morning is all about, right? He wants to actually set his people Free. Now, the quickest way to lose a battle is to realize, not realize that you're in a battle. Am I right? All throughout Scripture, God commands His people to not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you. First Peter. First Timothy chapter 6 says, Fight the good fight of faith. Ephesians 6, Paul tells the Ephesians to put on the full armor of God so that they can stand against the schemes of of the enemy. This is a constant theme in scripture. But listen, not only was this a physical battle, that there was a real army that was approaching the people of God that were knocking at the door, but this was a spiritual battle as well. The faithfulness and the goodness of God were on trial in this battle. 
the faithfulness and the goodness of God is on trial in the midst of your battle. So it's very important in the midst of the battle that we lock eyes with him. Now, the truth is, the battle that you're facing may be a little bit different than the battle that you think you're facing. So if you're here this morning and you are physically ill, you're not just going through physical illness, which is uh, difficult in and of itself, but it also begins to take an internal toil on your soul. Because you begin to ask questions like, why am I sick when everyone else is healthy? Why is this trial going on so long? I've prayed and I've cried and I've trusted God and it seems like heaven is silent, right? The battle is not just the battle that you're going through, but there's also a battle in your own heart to trust in the faithfulness and the goodness of God. In his book, Truth and Lies, David Tackle says this. This is, this is about the interpretation that we make of our circumstances. So you're going through the circumstances, which is your battle, but your interpretation of those circumstances, what you believe about God is also part of the battle. He says, to one extent or another, we all hold distorted images of God. So what he's saying is, you can say like, I know God is good, but you really don't know. You know, you can church it up a little bit and pretend you can hold these conflicting views at the same time. You can say, I know God's for me. I know he's with me. But what, but what authentic corporate worship is about is that going from just this abstract theological category to the thing that fuels your faith and sustains you, right? That's what he's talking about. To one extent or another, we all hold distorted images of God. We fear his disapproval. We do not trust him with our futures. We doubt his love and we run away from him when we failed. Yep, I've done that. God, for most of us, is either too distant, too disappointed, or too uncaring. Many people suffer terribly from self-hate, which is in part a fleshed-out disbelief in God's love for them. They want another life either because they are sure they have failed at this one or because they believed that God shortchanged them from the start. I don't know where you are in the midst of your battle. But the battle that you're going through is a battle for the faithfulness and the goodness of God to be expressed in the core of your being. Corporate worship and corporate prayer is about coming together and affirming the trustworthy nature of God. That he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, that's a corporate passage, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We come together to remind each other, but we also come together to encounter. Which brings me to my next point. Worship becomes warfare when we draw down strength from the character, the nature, and the presence of God. I'll say it again. Worship becomes warfare when we draw down strength from the character, the nature, and the presence of God. 
In verses 5 through 12, Jehoshaphat is basically praying on behalf of the people of God. And any time that you see a prayer in Scripture, like, I want you to pay close attention because God is saying, this is how you pray, right? I mean, oftentimes, I mean, there's volumes and volumes of books like on how to pray, and I think they're great. But uh, an underutilized resource in learning how to pray is actually the Bible, right? God has inspired this, this prayer to be prayed, and he preserved it for us so that we could learn lessons from us. So this is a picture of what you guys have been talking about over and over again. This is what intercession looks like, right? This is Jehoshaphat reminding the people of God of the faithfulness of God. He's reminding God of the faithfulness of God. And there's something that happens internally when we begin to say, God, you are faithful. God, you are a covenant-keeping God. You're the one that did not spare your own son. Siri's talking to me. Sorry. Could have been the Holy Spirit. Who knows? (laughs) But there's something powerful that happens when we begin to fix our mind and our hearts on him. So this is what intercession looks like. It's important in these moments when you are in the midst of the battle to remember your history with God. Right? We all have a story both individually and this church has a story corporately with the faithfulness of God. This is what Jehoshaphat is doing in verses 5 through 12. He's reminding God of how he's been faithful in the past and that he will be faithful in the present. And listen, I have gone through more battles than I could care to catalog or share with you. And in every single one of those, I've seen my wife undergo a 10-year bout with depression and anxiety and God meet her in the midst of that and heal her. I've seen prodigal children come home, right? So if you're here and you're the parent of a teenager, I was a prodigal child. I've had a prodigal child and I've also seen them come home. I've seen God meet my church over and over again when there seems no human reason that it should continue to exist. I've seen God be faithful in those contexts. And I know those stories. I've experienced the victory of God, but in every one of those trials and every one of those battles, I thought this was going to be the one that takes me out, right? Instinctively, whatever you are facing now seems to be the greatest trial that you've ever actually encountered. But not only do we have stories individually, we have a story corporately. And I love what you have going on out there in the lobby. You guys just celebrated 10 years together um, as a worshiping community that's gone out on mission, changing the city of Paragould. You need to draw on the, your corporate history together. And just as I was worshiping, there's just this idea of legacy. Like, it doesn't matter if you, this is your first week here or you've been here since you were in Jared's living room when he lived in Jonesboro. Like, you are part of the story of God that's happening. You're stepping into a legacy of faithfulness. And um, Jared doesn't know I'm going to do this, but if you are a leader here, if you're a leader, if you lead a group, if you're a spouse leader, would you stand up for me? Robert, I know that's you. That's Jared. You lead a missional community, lead worship. Lead a greeting team. You lead Sunday school class, whatever you guys call it. All right? Listen, I really truly believe that in these moments, as you're stepping into this legacy and the story of God for the city of Paragould, that he has a season of refreshment for you guys. Um, He wants to personally 
encourage you. I mean, I think he wants to be nearer than a brother. I think he wants to continue to leverage your relationships together as you strengthen one another. But it's almost like this, this picture, like Moses is kind of holding up his hands and uh, or is it Joshua? Anyway, you, you get the picture. Like there's this idea of you guys needing to hold each other's hands up in this season. But I, I feel very strongly that there's a, there's a real refreshment that's coming. Um, that it comes from God, but it's also going to come in your relationships with one another. So can we just honor these folks? I mean, they lay down their life over and over again. All right, you guys can be seated. It was, it was Joshua. All right, anyway. Um, <laughs> But the reason I do that, if, if you're new here, there's good leaders at this church. Like they're healthy. Um, and all of us to one degree or another have stories probably in our past of churches that have hurt us or burned us. Um, but this is a group of people that are committed to health and that's why I, it's a joy to be here. So you must draw on corporate promises and corporate stories to remind each other because we're not meant to live life together on our own. So I want to bring you into a few aspects of Jehoshaphat's prayer. This is some lessons on intercession from Jehoshaphat. First of all, look at verse 6 with me. This is Jehoshaphat speaking, and he said, Lord, the God of our ancestors, you are... Are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. So what's he doing there? He's reminding God of God's what? His power, right? There's no one that can withstand you. He, in the midst of the battle, he's reminding himself, he's reminding God, and he's reminding the people that there's no one greater than God, right? And we need that, right? Because, listen, instinctively, we don't get this. We're more like C-3PO from Empire Strikes Back. You guys know C-3PO, right? I don't speak all Star Wars, but I speak the 80s version. So C-3PO in the Empire Strikes Back, he, Han Solo wants to go through in the Millennium Falcon, he wants to go through an asteroid field, you know what I'm saying? You know that story? He's flying the Millennium Falcon and C-3PO says, the odds of successfully navigating an asteroid field is 3,720 to 1, right? And Han Solo says, never tell me the odds, right? Yeah, this is interactive. We're still going here. (laughs) Never tell God the odds, right? We tend to look everywhere and anywhere except at the size of our God. We look at the size of the battle. We look at the size of our resources. But 2 Chronicles chapter 20 is an invitation. No matter where you are or what you're facing, God is greater. Amen? All right. So he's telling the people of God to fix their eyes on his power. But he also wants them to know this. Look at verse 7. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel? So there's a previous victory he's drawing on. And give it forever to the descendants of Abraham. And what's that last word? Your friend, right? Do you think of God as your friend? This is about Jehoshaphat drawing down intimacy with God. He's calling on the faithfulness and the friendship of God. One of the greatest gifts of prayer and worship is intimacy with God. I want you to get this because this is, this is everything. 
Prayer and worship nights are, are not about you somehow twisting God's arm or convincing him because you cry out the loudest or you cry the most to do what you want to do. But it actually is preparing your heart to lay hold of his willingness. Prayer changes us much more than it changes God. God is compassionate towards our cries, but he wants to meet us in the midst of this. God is not a religious commodity to explore. He actually is a covenant-keeping God who can be trusted. God is profoundly relational, and we are his people. We're his treasured possession. We are his children. And I had this other impression in worship. I think there's people in here, you feel like you're in the family of God, but instead of being a dearly loved child, maybe you're like a distant cousin, you know, that God somehow plays favorites, you know, and maybe he loves you, but he doesn't love you as much as the one that's sitting next to you or in front of you. I've been in that place. And there's part of this as we come together as the family of God, it reinforces our identity and who we are. Prayer also tells us where to fix our eyes. Verse 12, one of the key verses in this passage. If you were going to memorize one, this would be it. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So when you come into these spaces and there is difficult things happening, you could be surrounded, right? I don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Your faithfulness, your goodness, your faithfulness to your people throughout all generations. And my wife, she has been my best friend for 22 plus years, been married And she knows with one single look, as we look in each other's eyes, she knows if I'm afraid. She knows if I'm tired. She knows if I'm scared. She knows if I want to go to bed. (laughs) You know, she knows all of those things. And I mean that in the wholesome way. Um, (laughs) Just thought, you know, you get preachers and they just make jokes and don't even know where that's going. But she knows by looking in my eyes what I'm feeling. And in the midst of your battle, you're going to want to fix your eyes on the enemy. You're going to want to fix your eyes on your own resources. But God says, I want you to fix your eyes on me. I want you to look in the eyes of the one who created you. And when he's talking about our eyes, he's not talking about just looking up to the ceiling, but it's what Ephesians talks about, the eyes of your heart. He wants to give you understanding into the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of his love. He wants you to be spiritually strengthened as you see him. But the truth is, as we draw down strength from his character, his nature, and his presence, our battle actually becomes his battle. Verses 14 and 15, there's this priest named Jehaziel. And the Spirit of God comes on him and begins to speak to Jehoshaphat. And this is what he says. This is a message from God. He says, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. So when we begin to fight, as we begin to trust, as we begin to draw down strength from him, our battle actually becomes his battle. And if there's anything that you get this morning, it's this. 
Victory is ours because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? He has already defeated every single thing that you are facing. Now, I don't know if you're going to experience that victory by deliverance this morning or deliverance on the final day, but victory is yours. And that is why you can come in here and you can be crying your eyes out because of what you're facing. But in the midst of all of that, as you lock eyes with him, you begin to find strength and comfort and you know that God is faithful because victory is ours. And I just want to say this. I think God wants us to trust him for more, you know? Um, I don't think people are suffering unnecessarily, but I, th- I think we don't trust him to do big things. And I, and I just can't shake it. I, I think today he really does want to speak to anxiety and depression. And he, and he wants to break the al- allegiance that you have in your mind to the lies that you've been believing about yourself and about him. Like, as we sing these final songs, I mean, there's going to be a form of deliverance. And I want you just to anticipate that victory already, that claim it as yours. But if you need ongoing help, that's what our missional communities are for. That's what pastors, elders, counselors, all of those folks are eager to help you. But victory belongs to you. Look at verses 18 through 23 of me. You're going to see one of the most counterintuitive battle plans in the history of the world. It says, Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some of the Lephites from the Kohatites and the Korahites stood up and praised the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat said, stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and the people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out ahead of the army, saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever." And as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. That's what happens to all of God's enemies. They were defeated. The Ammonites, the Moabites, they rose up against the men from Mount Seir and to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So I want you to get this. This is a radical picture. This is worship before the battle even happens, right? It's, it's one thing to praise Jesus when you've received deliverance. It's another to you know, have worship become warfare and to worship in the midst of the battle. So God in the midst of the battle actually wants us to raise a song or to raise a hallelujah as we anticipate the victory. Now, this is actually a picture. I want, you, I want you to picture this. So there's an invading army that's right outside this building. What are we going to do? We're going to send Chris. And we're going to send the praise and worship team out. And they're going to sing Chris Tomlin songs. I mean, that's what's going on in this picture. These are real people. I'm guessing they have like spears and shields and things. But Jehoshaphat, he's heard from the Lord that victory is so certain. We're going to go ahead and worship in anticipation of the victory. That's what this passage communicates. That's how we actually draw down strength. So I want to give you just a quick few words of application. This is how this becomes real. The first is... Worship is multi-generational. 
As I mentioned at the beginning, we all have inherited a culture of worship, right? That could be from your denominational background. It could be from just looking at your neighbor and what they do and what's acceptable here. But more and more, we want our worship to be informed by Scripture. What I love about this in this passage is that all of the men, women, and children are praying and fasting together. They're learning by looking at their parents, to the people to the right and the left of them, what it means to respond to God. So there's a stewardship issue when we come together as the people of God. What kind of faith are we going to hand to the next generation? Listen, I, I have five children that are in Gen Z, and they love Jesus. They're passionate about him. But you know what? Most of the people in their school could care less. But what they don't want to do is play church. Like either, this is what you can know if you're a teenager in here. They're either all in or they're all out. Like there's no playing church. So what they are craving in these moments is a group of people to raise up, to be raised up that actually praise and sing and worship and pray like Jesus really is alive. And so um, Jehoshaphat learned these lessons from his father Asa. You can read about these in Second Chronicles chapter 15. Asa was a great reformer. He tore down the idols of other generations so that worship could be restored. So much so that he kicked his mother, the queen, out of the kingdom. And if you, you know, kick your mom out <laughs> from being queen, like you're pretty serious about the Jesus stuff, right? But we need to set our own generation free from these idols, The idols of our generation are apathy, consumerism, just like what's in it for me. Like I'm only going to worship if I feel like it or I feel moved. Can I be honest? Worship is not about you. It's not about your feelings, not how you enter this room. It's about the worth and the majesty and the value of God. The reason that we worship is because he's worthy. There are cherubim and seraphim that are around the throne. They never get tired of saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They never get bored, right? That's our destination. We're going to be worshipers in heaven. So what we do here is practice for that day. So worship is about the next generation, but worship is also holistic. This means that we're bringing our bodies, our minds, our souls, our emotions into the reality of who God is. So we bring our, most of us are aware that in some way we want to bring our hearts, but this is kind of the only place where we tend to bifurcate who we are. We're like, I'm just going to worship in my heart today. But what we see in this picture in the book of second chronicles is a picture of holistic worship there's all kinds of terms for responding to god with your body and can i be honest sometimes i i worship like this because i am amazed and i am thrilled with who god is but sometimes i'm telling my soul to be amazed right the posture of your body affects the posture of your heart like when when you bow down to pray what does it do it humbles you When you exalt and you praise, it lifts your gaze off of yourself. Just like Chris says, it it makes you needy and dependent and I'm open to receive. This is not about drawing attention to yourself, but about drawing attention to the worth and the value of God. So I'm going to give you a few different words that appear in this passage that help us to respond with our mind, our wills, our emotions. Verse 18, there's a word called shakah, and it means to bow down. 
It says everyone in this passage, all of them, not just the charismatics, bowed down before the Lord. The posture of your body affects your heart. Verse 19, there's a word for praise. It's hallel. It's where we get the word hallelujah. It means to shine. It means to set God apart, to become clamorously foolish, to be undignified. When was the last time you were undignified in a church service, right? Yesterday, I was at the Arkansas-Mississippi State game. They were clamorously foolish. You can pray for me. My heart's still hurting a little bit. I'm a Razorback fan. But they had their cowbells and they were ringing. I don't know if you guys know the cowbell thing, right? And they were play this Will Ferrell skit from Saturday Night Live, which I thought was a brilliant play. Um, and basically the skit says, hey, we need more cowbell. So at a big moment of the game, they're like, ding, 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 ding. Need more cowbell. Jehoshaphat in this passage is calling on the people of God. Hey, we need more cowbell. The enemy is getting close, right? So when we come together, everybody's facing a battle. These are the moments to give more cowbell, to become clamorously foolish, to become undignified in the presence of God. This is not, this is not just to get a response out of you, but this, this will affect your soul. This will affect your joy. Right? This will affect the next generation, whether they believe that you're playing a game or not. Verse 22, there's a word called sing. It's renah. It means a ringing cry, a joyful proclamation. Church is supposed to be happy. Gladness. Verse 22, tehela. It's a song of praise. It's a new and a spontaneous song. There's something that God does when he works in the heart of his people. It's not just the song that you're singing, but there's a song in your heart where you're wanting to express praise to him. I believe he wants to give this church a new song to sing for the freedom of the city. I believe you're going to have experiences when you come in this room where the bonds of addiction to drugs or pornography are broken in the presence of Jesus. Right? That's what this is about. This isn't a, a religious thing where we come together and we just remind each other. No, God is present with, the, with his people. So I want to go ahead and invite the band to come on up. I'm going to continue as we normally do to celebrate communion. And there are lots of different ways that you can celebrate communion. Most of them tend to be fairly uh, introspective. When you think about like all the bad things that you've done, right? How you failed, you know, maybe you didn't have a quiet time this week and you're battling shame. So you come to the table and that's a legitimate use of communion and celebrate that. But this, that's not what we're doing today. Okay. We are actually here to celebrate the victory that is already ours in Christ. So we're anticipating that victory. I want to read a verse from Isaiah 25 verses seven through nine. And this is what it says. This is the final song that we will sing before the Lamb. On this mountain, and that's the mountain of the Lord, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. So every ounce of pain you've experienced, Jesus is going to wipe it away. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth the Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. So today is about being glad in his salvation. 
I'm going to invite people to come forward and take the elements, but I want to, I want to pray because I, I think I saw in the first service, if you do this, I think this is a good way to apply this passage. We're going to be singing. We're going to, we're going to be clamorously foolish for the name of Jesus, whatever that looks like for you. Um, he just wants all of you, body, mind, and soul. If that's not very much today, that's great. He accepts that on behalf of Jesus, but he does want to meet with you. But people gathered in groups, if you're going to do that in this service, and you are one of those people when you want to claim that victory and fear and anxiety and worry in your life, like have somebody say, hey, that's me. I need that victory in my life. And let's believe that as we sing that people are going to be set free. I also believe that God wants to heal bodies as well. I have faith to pray for people. If you have, uh, I mean, from little boo-boos to like uh, life-altering circumstances. I believe Jesus has the power to heal today. So um, I'm personally will be over here if you want prayer for healing. Jared could help me get some of the elders. We just want to minister to you through the victory that Jesus has already won on our behalf. So as you come to the table today, this would be if there was ever a time to like sing and dance and maybe like skip to the you know, communion table, this is that day. This is victory that we already have. This is what victory tastes like for the people of God. So you can come, you can take the elements as you're ready, and we're going to just celebrate the goodness and the faithfulness of God together.